she had a move that the boys called the grip. And it involved reaching out with her hand and grabbing them underneath the chin and squeezing <laughs> their cheeks like this so their lips would poof out. And she had a strong grip, but it would hurt. And she would look them right in the eye and give them a good talking to it. Hello, everybody. You are listening to National Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. National Demystified is a show in which I get to know this fine city better. Today, we are going to spend some time getting to better know the late Christine Teeny Jarrett, professional wrestling's grand dame, by way of talking with her grandson and biographer, Brendan Martin. National Demystified, I should say, is brought to you by Knack Factory, a commercial video and content production company, and by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts by Nashvillians. From shows about great art capers to shows about Bill and Ted, this network has something for everyone. Check it out as soon as you can. Can you hear, by the way, can you hear my dog snoring in the background? That's for real. That's a real thing. <laughs> it's really my dog snoring. I should say, in addition to all that, that if this is a show that you enjoy and you haven't done so yet, please consider liking, rating, subscribing, and leaving a review. And find us on Instagram and Twitter, and if you absolutely have to, on Facebook. Okay, this is a continuation of our episode that we did a couple months back, one on Nick Goulis, Roy Welch, and the rise and fall of their wrestling empire. One name that kept coming up was Christine Teeny Jarrett, who by all accounts lived a true Nashville rags to riches story. Virtually every big name in wrestling in the second half of the 20th century crossed paths with Miss Christine, as she was known by most. If they wrestled for her by way of Goulas Welch, or when she came to oversee her own territories, once her son Jerry went out on his own, the wrestlers followed her rules. Teeny probably taught them a thing or two about staying out of trouble and saving money for a rainy day. If they got out of line, they likely faced the grip, her own infamous and immobilizing move, which is, you know, I mean, you don't, this is a little old lady. <laughs> she was, she was petite and, and for a lot of that time she was old, but she could really put you down with the grip, which I think is such a cool detail. Over the course of her 50-year career in wrestling, Teeny worked her way from selling tickets in the back of a Nashville shoe store to running a network of towns for Nick Goulis and Roy Welch to owning one of the most successful territories in the business. Regional wrestling, which once reigned supreme, particularly in these parts, fell from grace as Vince McMahon Jr. built his empire through the 80s and into the 90s. But while it was huge, Teeny was professional wrestling's grand dame. Now, let's talk with Brendan Martin about Christine Teeny Jarrett. I'd love to just start with who your grandmother is. The reason I was fascinated with Nick, as I said in that episode, is I found him totally by chance by following someone's blog, really, and, and he found him by chance as well. And so, okay. and I'm fascinated with the history of people who, because they weren't around, 
while the internet was around. Once a generation of people dies, you might not ever hear of these people again, even though they were instrumental and fascinating in the ways that they were. And so I learned of your grandmother, who again, I'm going to prompt you to talk about in a second, but I learned about your grandmother and was so grateful, even though I have no personal interest in wrestling, I was grateful that you covered her history because she's one of the people who easily could have gotten lost because she wasn't around for enough internet videos to exist about. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, and you know, that was my motivation in writing the book was to try to keep her story from being lost and to try to get the attention even, I'd love for her to get attention from everybody because I think she's got an amazing story. But you know, even if it only happens kind of within the wrestling world, trying to sort of cement her legacy there, which would be easy to lose, quite frankly. Mm. So your grandmother, just teeing it up, is Christine Teeny Jarrett. And here's the little I know of her story. She came into the game, split with her husband, single mother, got some opportunities to start working in wrestling, and over decades, truly ascended. Does that about sum it up? Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. You know, single mom, took a second job, second part-time job, selling tickets. And before it was all said and done, she made herself, to this day even, the most successful female promoter in the history of professional wrestling in the United States. Now, there's a woman in Japan, Mrs. Baba, uh, Giant Baba's wife, who was involved with New Japan Pro Wrestling for many years. And she was not just a promoter, but also a booker. And so she's definitely sort of the queen of the top of, of all women in wrestling. My grandmother's a close second, and nobody is even remotely close after that in terms of number of shows promoted, number of shows put on. The first picture I saw her was the Andre the Giant picture. And I saw it in this collection of uh, pictures that David Berman came across in an estate sale. And I didn't know, I hope that I can be forgiven for having no idea that this woman was a wrestling promoter because she in this picture looks like a very kind of um, conservative looking lady, you know, and she looks like a lady, you know, she doesn't seem like she's in wrestling. So what, what was, what was she like in this context? That's a good question. How do you describe Teeny? I mean, she was a mom. She was a grandmother. She was a very opinionated and strong woman. She was not someone who was easily bossed around by anyone. And she was someone who just had an internal strength to her that really exceeded that of all of her siblings and of anybody in her family to that point. And she was able to sort of parlay that from a position of not much power at all. So selling tickets part-time, right? You don't, there's not, you don't get a lot of say in the business at that point. But then she moved up and she became Nick's secretary. And then she became a bookkeeper. And then she started running towns. And she was just a very strong woman in every sense of the word. Like, so this wasn't inherently an interest that she pursued, I assume. She got in and then figured it out. She had no interest in wrestling whatsoever. So the way that it had worked out was uh, Nick was looking for a ticket girl. And he initially approached my grandmother's younger sister, Mary Catherine. And uh, Mary Catherine was, you know, of the five siblings, four girls, one boy. Mary Catherine was the youngest and she was the one they called the pretty one. And so Nick, you know, he was looking for some eye candy to sell tickets. And Nick was always looking for eye candy. He was a real womanizer. Um, constantly, you know, he's famous for, uh, for, let's just say, taking advantage of his position with some of the younger female talent. Uh, but he had approached Mary Catherine and asked her if she wanted 
a job selling tickets. And she, at the time, was working at the photo studio at Loveman's department store downtown in Nashville. And she thought that was a very glamorous job. She liked that. She didn't want to have anything to do with selling tickets. But she knew that Christine, her sister, was looking for another job. So she made the introduction, uh, Nick and Christine, just shortly thereafter to become teeny, uh, met. And Nick thought that she passed the whatever bar he was looking for in terms of physical appearance. And he also found out that she'd been a part-time bank teller at First American National Bank downtown. And she'd also been a part-time cashier at Woolworth. So he knew she could handle money. And she knew, he knew that she was reviewed and was vetted and was responsible. If she could work at the bank, she could work for him. And so that's where it all got started. She took this job. There was no ticket office right? At least not for advanced tickets. Uh, the tickets were sold from a table at the back of Jarman's shoe stores in downtown Nashville. Uh, and that's where she sold tickets, but that didn't occupy all her time. So she also started selling shoes, even though she didn't get paid for that. Uh, and she was the best shoe salesman they had. But so anyway, she combined you know, work ethic, interior strength, and smarts, and was able to take this little part-time job and become uh, quite powerful. It's wild to me, especially thinking that knowing these stories, I certainly in some of the reading that I did absolutely encountered the stories of people who are womanizing, who are like paying off senators. I mean, it's it's a crazy background. And to think of this person who in all the pictures I can see looks already very much like a grandmother. I'm curious to know just like, how the hell did she navigate it? Uh, it clearly she was not just brilliant, but extraordinarily savvy to go from ticket sales to assuming a power, a highly powerful position with territories, et cetera, in, in her field. Like, what was her strategy outside of just knowing where all the bodies were buried? <laughs> <laughs> these are good questions. I've done a bunch of podcasts and I haven't been getting these types of questions. And it really requires some thought to answer. I mean, the truth is that I don't know exactly where it came from or sure. how she did it. So she had sort of four rules when she was in charge and she was running a town that she expected the boys to follow. One was, and whenever you say the boys, it's talking about the wrestlers. So be on time. And this was true sort of across all of the territory. My uncle didn't stand for being late either, but it was, you know, an hour before the first bell, the wrestlers were expected to be in the door uh, and in the dressing room, getting ready, going over the match and so forth. No foul language. She believed that wrestling, disregarding all the violence, she believed that wrestling was a, a family affair and that if the wrestlers were using foul language in the dressing room, they might use it on the floor or, or heaven forbid, they might use it in the ring with a mic. And she felt that if there was foul language being used, that people would not bring their kids, for instance, that they would leave the kids at home and only one parent coming, for instance, instead. Of, so she'd sell one ticket instead of four uh, for the whole family. So that was her thought behind that. Um, she wasn't a terribly religious woman. She just believed that foul language was not something that she used, especially in public. The other one was stay away from the arena rats. Uh, and I don't know if you haven't come across that term before. Arena rat is a woman who, by definition, is of ill repute and is out to, you know, uh, land themselves a husband or a boyfriend. Or in, and in her, you know, as she very well knew, they may or may not be of consenting age. And so she didn't want the wrestlers hanging out with the young girls for practical reasons related to the business, but also just because she didn't think that was the right kind of behavior. And then the last rule was not to break kayfabe. 
you know, bad guys never show up with good guys. Bad guys, you don't uh, hang out in public after the matches or before. If you're a bad guy, you do not sign autographs. But she didn't use the term heels and face because that would be breaking kayfabe, right? To admit that there were these special names. She always referred to good guys and bad guys. So anyway, I, I was talking about how she navigated this, but she had these rules that she believed were the right way to run the business, but she had rules for herself as well and, and what she would tolerate from the boys. And when they broke those rules, she was not afraid to take matters into her own hand, quite literally. She had a move that the boys called the grip, and it involved reaching out with her hand and grabbing them underneath the chin and squeezing <laughs> their cheeks like this so their lips would poof out. And she had a strong grip, but it would hurt. And she would look them right in the eye and give them a good talking to if they'd broken the rules. And they were all too afraid of her to do anything about that. She was not afraid to lay hands on these men. And they, by and large, not at all of them, but by and large, they respected her rules. Did you find it unusual that you were a part of a wrestling family? Is that something you had awareness of? Sure, I had awareness of it. I, it wasn't unusual for me because it was the only thing I ever knew. Sure. It was unusual in the sense that none of my, I knew none of my friends were, were also in it. And I spent my childhood defending the business and explaining that, no, no, it's real. Because I honestly believe that. And I did till much older than I should have figured it out. Because again, Teeny never broke kayfabe, and that includes the family. So if you didn't figure it out for yourself, she was not going to smarten you up. And if you ask questions... She was going to do everything she could to answer in such a way that she didn't lie, but she also didn't tell you the truth. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I actually figured out how to do that myself. After I put the book out in 2017, I went around to independent matches in Tennessee and Kentucky, just setting up a table and selling books and talking to people about teeny. And I was at a match. Uh, it was at a, a county fair up in Kentucky. And uh, at this point, I forget what county it was in, but there was a young boy he was maybe 12 years old and he comes by and there's a match going on. It was an outdoor ring. And he says to me, he said, is that real? And I said, that's real wrestling. And he <laughs> said, he said, no, but are they really fighting? I said, it's as real as it's going to get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was enough. That, that, that's great. that to him, that said, I said it was real. And that's not yeah. what I said. And that right. was the way Teeny would answer questions as well. Yeah. Uh, I would ask her after getting in an argument on the playground, Oh, Teeny, you know, so-and-so said that wrestling's not real and all that blood that you see on, on, on TV is fake. It's pig's blood. And she would look at me and she said, Brennan, I promise you that blood is real and it is really coming from those men. Yeah. She didn't say that they've hidden a little right. shark thing in their, <laughs> in their sweatband and they've cut themselves on the forehead. Right? She didn't say that part, but that was enough for me. I was like, okay, it's real. Keep defending it. I did not grow up watching wrestling, but I certainly grew up in the 80s and 90s and there was no not knowing about wrestling. Like it was right. it was what McMahon and company turned it into with regard to sort of a national phenomenon on the backs of all of this foundation that when all these people that we're talking about right now, you, there's no way to not know about it. And I didn't know what, what kayfabe was though until doing this research, right? And it was both revealing in a, in a fascinating way and it added a new layer of confusion to me because no, knowing what kayfabe is that it's kind of like the narrative and the performance but it's an internalized reality in which people it's rules that people operate by both like sort of in the ring and outside of the ring 
it made it even more confusing to me to understand the actual business drama and that that was not unreal. Do you know what I mean? For example, when I learned about Nick Goulas in what sounds like a series of attempted screwings of your uncle uh, towards the late 70s, I was like, oh, that's not fake. Like these are real businessmen and business people that were actually savvy and trying to get everything that they could and having actual breakups with each other. And there was real drama. How did Teeny fare in, in that end of things? I mean, it seems like there were real stakes and real hurt feelings. Oh, there absolutely were. I mean, that, so in the days before the WWF, now WWE, everything was territory-based. And if you think about it, what's another loose collection of businessmen who operate based upon negotiated territories? I, please tell me. The mafia. Yo, of course, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> totally, yeah. So these territories were uh, managed uh, in a sort of constantly shifting way in which there would be territorial skirmishes. So a given town between two territories, it might be that the first territory has, you know, officially owns it. And I'm using air quotes for those who can't see our video. But yet the neighboring territory, they might want to run a show there as well. In which case they would book a location, start to promote it, run the event. And the official owner of that territory may very well send somebody out with brass knuckles and baseball bats to solve mm. that particular dispute. So back in the old days, that's the way these things often got settled, was, was with fisticuffs and was with physical skirmishes between members of the competing territories. It wasn't always like that, but it was definitely not unheard of. And so it was the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, they came to manage, they were founded in the early 50s, I think, uh, maybe late 40s. Uh, but uh, that was sort of the, all of these territory owners coming together and say, we think that there's actually reasons for us to cooperate. We can pass wrestlers from one territory to the next star. You know, we can have like a national champion. That person can go around to different uh, territories and defend his belt and sometimes lose it. And anyway, they came together. And, and the, so the NWA started managing some of these territory boundaries a little bit, but there were still those kinds of skirmishes mm. uh, up until even in the, you know, in the seventies. In fact, the Poffo family out of Kentucky, you actually know who these people are, although you don't know it. Randy Poffo is the given name of Randy Macho Man uh, Savage. Right, right. Uh, Lanny Poffo uh, wrestled under his own name. Uh, and then there was uh, the father, Angelo Poffo. Anyway, they had their own promotion and they were running these unauthorized shows around Kentucky in the middle of the Jarrett territory. This was after the split with Nick and it was Teeny and her son, Jerry Jarrett, who were running that territory at that time. And, you know, there was a lot of animosity between the Poffos and the Jarretts. And the Poffos even would run shows where they would promote it that like, Finally, it's going to be, you know, Jerry Lawler coming in and, and, and going against their champion or whatever. When, of course, that was never the case. They basically, you know, would make fun of him for being afraid to show up, even though there was never was an agreement for him to be there in the first place. But ultimately, that all got worked out and the Poffos joined Jarrett. And that's when Randy, uh, he had a big run in uh, Memphis before heading to the WWE. So these skirmishes were real. They actually happened. We can talk about the sort of what happened in terms of the split between the Jarrett's and Goulas, uh, but jumping sort of fast forwarding to McMahon, 
that all came about a different way, right? That came about through Vince McMahon after he bought the business from his father. Uh, Vince Sr. was a big uh, supporter of the, of the National Wrestling Alliance. Vince Jr. was not. Vince Jr., he wanted to take the whole thing national. He read the tea leaves with the fact that cable television was taking a single channel out to everybody in the U.S. And that if he could get a program there, then his stars could be famous everywhere. Mm-hmm. Previously, the boundaries roughly followed the over-the-air broadcast, TV broadcast footprints. And uh, a territory could only generally get as big as you could control the TV rights to. Well, Vince got national TV rights. And by deciding to basically ignore all of the old rules to say, we're not part of the NWA anymore, we're going to do our own thing, and we don't give a crap what any of you think, Vince was able to make his own New York-based territory the de facto national territory. And in the meantime, he made it big for himself, and he made it small for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you talked about wrestling becoming the national phenomenon that it is today. The reality is that there's a lot fewer people watching and following wrestling now than there was in the 70s, for instance. So Memphis Wrestling, uh, number one TV show Saturday morning that aired on Memphis television. How much do you know about Nielsen ratings and uh, what makes a good rating these days? I I know a lot, actually, quite a bit, yeah. Uh, Okay, so take the most popular show on television right now. What do you think the the share is? What's this? Oh, it's like it's it's like it's like one point two percent or so. It's like nothing. <laughs> right. In the broadcast area where the where uh, my uncle Jerry's uh, Saturday morning wrestling TV show aired, it had a ninety percent share. Ninety <laughs> percent of all televisions turned on at that time were tuned in to his broadcast, and of course, you know that pattern repeated itself as that same broadcast or a an adapted version same matches but different promotion different promos would go out for louisville for evansville for lexington for wherever it was going to hire for nashville so whenever they recorded they would then package that up and and broadcast it Mm -hmm. uh, you know ship the tape to all these other locations and it would air there as well Sure. So it was it was popular entertainment. Like when I think back on my elementary school days, when I'm talking about when Vince McMahon's heyday was, there would be one or two kids in a class who might be avid fans. And what you're talking about is for probably boys in particular. You know, nine out of ten boys were tuning in to see what was happening on local wrestling. That's right, and not just boys. I mean, you know, uh, definitely had plenty of female fans as well. In fact. My wife grew up in Seattle, uh, also a child of the 70s, and she watched whatever program played out there every Saturday morning with her father. It was a massive cultural phenomenon. So let's go back a little bit with Teeny's role in the Gulas and Welch empire. <laughs> yeah, we got to retrain you, though. Gulas Welch. Gulas Welch with a slash, right? The, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the- right. With a definitely Gulas hyphen Welch wrestling enterprises. And, you know, that all came about because. Roy Welch was, he was really the guy in charge when it all started, right? He was, uh, he was in-ring talent. He was the booker. He was the one, you know, handling all the boys. But he needed a front man. He needed a face to the business, someone who could go out and sell it because in, in the interest of protecting kayfabe, it couldn't just be Roy Welch wrestling because he was showing up in the ring. And so if he won all the time, 
the fans would get suspicious. And so he hired Nick just to pretend like he was in charge. <laughs> and it was only over time that Nick actually came to have power. Uh, at first, he was a puppet, uh, just doing whatever Roy told him to. Sure. And Roy was kind of of wrestling royalty, right? His dad was a wrestler. He was in his, a lot of his siblings had a foot in. So he was steeped in it. And Nick came to it late. That's right. So I don't know about Roy's father wrestling. His original time wrestling was at the circus. You know, this was a sideshow event. And you mentioned Pat Malone. Pat Malone was in a similar situation, Green Shadow. You know, they, they got started with uh, wrestling. You know, they were basically shoot matches, meaning they were real because it was wrestling whoever would raise their hand at the circus. And was like, I can whip that guy. <laughs> and they were bona fide tough men who knew wrestling moves, who could win by submission of their opponent every time. It didn't matter how big the guy was. You put one of these guys in the ring with them. They knew how to get them to tap out. And so it was basically wrestlers who got tired of that, who wanted to put on the show, but not have somebody out there who was actually trying to kill them. That's how it sort of migrated into being this performance where both wrestlers knew what the outcome was going to be going into it. Sure. Sure. It was probably saving some lives too. I imagine. I think that if you're, you're at a circus and you're volunteering to beat the shit out of somebody else. Like it's, it's risky. That's a risky move. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, you know, and they occasionally find themselves up against people who had more talent than others, but you know, but Roy, so Roy was, he was, uh, he was a tough guy and he was, I believe the first person in the Welch family to get involved with wrestling. And then he brought siblings and uh, descendants in. Although, Descendants, after a couple of generations, he stopped allowing them to use the Welsh name. They had mm. to switch to the name Fuller for, right. for reasons that aren't 100% clear to me. But I've heard, uh, um, I've heard Robert Fuller talk about that on his podcast. Mm. Yeah, I, I started listening to his podcast, which is also fascinating. Um, oh, he's a talk about a wealth of information. Yeah, and he can absolutely. talk forever. Yeah, and he does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Do you and and so you know, I, it's funny you talked earlier about what is another business that has all these territories, and and it's the mob. And it's funny because in that last piece I did previous, where I, I had cut out a whole line where I had talked about exactly what you said. Whereas in in drug territories, you have people. People who sort of decide what the larger territory is, they cut up the territory and they split between them. And I, I didn't fully realize the power of these people until, as I said in the podcast, Gulis was a, um, when his wife passed, the pallbearers were Fate Thomas, who himself was, uh, you know, a quasi criminal in, in an official capacity, or actually a real criminal in an official capacity. And Gulis was on the planning board to get the convention center. In. I mean, like these were connected people. Uh, and if their business was, quote, legitimate, but I I mean, these were, these were extraordinarily powerful people in the cities they were in. Well, they were. And, you know, Nick had a talent for well-placed gifts, shall we say. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and you mentioned his, his funeral, little piece of trivia. Teeny actually paid for that because he was broke oh, by the time he died. Really? Um, yeah. She paid for him to be uh, buried. But yeah, you know, they were as exactly that, influential people, in part because of the uh, fact that wrestling was a, this thing that everybody would come to, in part because, you know, Nick liked to rub shoulders with powerful people. And, you know, there were times I think he had to 
grease some palms in order to keep things moving. Sure. One of his claims was the name of the senator who wrote the bill following the quiz show scandal uh, back in the... Was that, was that Estes Kefauver? Estes Kefauver. So, yeah. so Nick claims that he managed to convince Kefauver to write the part into that bill that expressly excluded wrestling from being covered by that law. No idea whether that's true or not, but Nick claims that he saved wrestling because of that. Well, and I found in a book called Chokehold that he and, and Welch, I mean, this, this, okay, Chokehold was entertaining as far as I could tell. It was light on citation. Uh, yeah, but but yeah. there is a story in which he and Welch sort of run him five grand in a paper bag. So everyone who speaks to his character says that that's something that he wouldn't do. But I mean, God, you know, these, <laughs> these people are very right. close to influence. I, I don't know anything about Kefauver. Um, sure. I do know that Nick would absolutely do that. Sure, um, sure, sure, sure. And, who knows and, where it went? <laughs> in fact, yeah. And he placed one very good bribe actually on my family's behalf. He kept my father out of Vietnam with a case of Jack Daniels to the right person who then had my father assigned to the National Guard. All those spots were filled. Sure. Uh, he was headed to Vietnam, but thanks to Nick, he didn't go. You know, it's interesting. In one way or another, this podcast has become, as, as I said at the beginning, about America. It's about Nashville, obviously, but it's about America in a time when you knew all the people in charge. And for the good and the bad, there were so many good things about that. that people have retrospective rosy colored glasses about. There are terrible things about that. <laughs> and and so that those are exactly the kind of tales of Nashville that I, I'm looking to tell. In the mid-70s, when it started to transition, and, and it sounds like Nick got a little greedy with regard to pushing his son George's involvement in wrestling over, over talent of other people, and people seemed to get frustrated, and there were backhanded deals about whose territory was what. It seems like Teeny held on to some power at that time and continued to have power as well. Did she? It sounds like she didn't have a fall from grace. It sounds like she just went... She she retired when it was time. Is that what happened? Not exactly. So the story is, I think, actually a pretty sad one because you mentioned the fact that when George was born, Nick said something about there's my next this champion. champion. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, George, as you noted, had zero talent for wrestling, but his father, like Teeny, was a workaholic mm. and just was always around wrestling. George was actually a reasonably talented basketball player. Mm. And if he had done that, he could possibly have had some success, but he didn't. He wanted his father's attention. And his father, old George Rotten, Nick used to brag about the fact that he would leave a stack of 20s on George's uh, dresser mm. so that he could, you know, take whatever he needed any time. But Nick did not exactly shower George with attention. George wanted to get into wrestling, seeking his father's attention. He knew that if he could be a wrestling star, sure. his father would be proud of him. And, you know, he'd get to spend more time with his dad. And it just didn't work out that way. George had no talent for wrestling. He was not very muscular. He's very tall and gangly, um, not terribly coordinated unless he had a basketball in his hand. And it just, it didn't work. And so at that time, the territory had gotten to be too big to be managed as one. So it had been split up earlier where basically Roy was running the Memphis end of the territory, but then he got too old and my uncle Jerry started showing a talent for booking. And so Jerry became a booker. And then as Roy got older and was less involved, 
Jerry was basically running the Memphis end of the territory. Nick was running the Birmingham end, they call it. Uh, now, Birmingham end included Nashville, Chattanooga, Birmingham, and Knoxville. And so it kind of ended up that way because of TV broadcast rights, but also because of, think about the guys making the circuit, that's where they could kind of drive around to in a given week. And Nick was running the Nashville, or the, the Birmingham end of the territory into the ground by really pushing George and wanting to make him a star. And it just, people weren't buying it. Ticket sales were falling off. People weren't coming to the shows anymore. Meanwhile, Jerry was doing great on the Memphis end. Shows were sold out all the time. You know, he had talent like Lawler and Dundee and these guys that were really over big with the crowd. And Jerry was a very talented booker. He knew how to run these programs that would go for weeks and months on end. He knew how to keep people coming back. Nick didn't understand any of that at all. And so Nick said, you know, basically he wanted George to make more money. So he told Jerry, said, Jerry, you're going to book George in Memphis in the main event in two weeks. And Jerry said, the hell I am not happening. And, and Nick said, well, who do you think owns this business, boy? And uh, Jerry said, well, don't forget, Nick, I've, I'm a, an owner now. I've been buying in. I've been paying for, for shares and I've given you, I think Jerry told me it was, it was about $50,000. Whether it was that much or not, I'm not clear. But that, you know, that would be a huge chunk of money back at that time in the mid-70s. Well, what had actually happened was that Nick had taken advantage of Jerry's naivete and inability to read a contract and a lack of understanding about what an option is. And in fact, Nick had been selling Jerry options for shares that he never had any intention of, of selling. Mm. So he was just taking Jerry's money, in other words. Yeah. Uh, and Jerry fell for it. And when Jerry learned what had happened, because it was exactly at that time when Nick said, you're going to book George in two weeks. That was when Jerry talked to the lawyer and found out how he had been swindled. And he made a decision at that point to leave. But it took him a little while to sort of get his ducks in a row. He had to make sure that if he left, that he would be able to take talent with him. He had to make sure that he would be able to get a location to run, that he would be able to uh, get television and so forth. So he was able to line all that up and he got television by being able to get all of the top talent in Memphis with the exception of two wrestlers, Jackie Fargo and Tojo Yamamoto agreed to go with Jerry if he left. And Lance Russell, the announcer, agreed to go with Jerry, not just to go with him, but to leave his job as a program director at the station that they'd been working at and to switch to this new station. So by bringing along all this talent, which included also Dave Brown, who was a top weatherman at the time, Jerry was able to make the move. And then when he did so, he didn't just successfully make the move and eventually win the NWA's support for the breakoff, another thing Nick thought would never happen. But he also, so he built this successful promotion and he completely changed the balance of power of the local TV shows in Memphis. Hmm. The station that he went to they became the number one station in Memphis because he brought his program with him. Uh, where, and then the other one that had been the leading station, they fell from grace. Wow. So, I mean, it was, a, it was this huge thing. But so then talk about, well, what was Teeny's role in that? Yeah. Teeny's role, she at that time was running all of the, uh, every show every week in Louisville, Evansville. Lexington at that point was once a month at the Rupp Arena. 
And then she was doing spot shows elsewhere in Kentucky on the Thursdays that Lexington wasn't running. So she had been doing that since 1970. And the venue owners up there, they never even met Nick Goulas. They only knew her. So when Jerry left, she left with him and was able to bring all of Kentucky with her into that Memphis territory. And it was just really a matter of, I mean, she was, she loved Nick, right? They were like brother and sister. And she had a tremendous degree of loyalty that she felt for him, but it didn't exceed the loyalty she felt for her own son. Right, of course. So she, so she bankrolled her son. She left with him. She gave her letter of resignation to Nick, but that was in 1977. So after 31 years, she'd been working for Nick since 1946. And Roy Welch by this time was dead. Uh, she gave her letter of resignation. But even after she quit working with Nick that year, she still did his taxes at the end of the year uh, because uh, she was his friend and he needed help. So she, so she did the uh, taxes for what was then, I think, I don't know if he still called it Goulas Welch or if it's just Goulas, but in any case, probably still Goulas Welch, even though Roy had died. I mean, these are all families. This is a family, a literal family drama. Like wrestling from the from the forties oh, yeah. on is a is a series of families dealing with. I'm so glad you brought up that dimension to the the story with Nick and George because you only ever hear the story in a very two dimensional way. That Nick was pushing George, and people didn't want it, and George was a bad wrestler, and but. With the way that you described it, with this true drama, which any latchkey kid can relate to, they wanted to connect with their parent and they didn't know how outside of doing their their profession. It's a that's a devastating story, and then it leads to this fallout of friends. It's really sad uh, when you look at it. And in my book, I I spend a whole chapter on George Goulas, and he doesn't come out looking very good. I, I, um, I was pretty tough on George in part because, I mean, I knew George growing up. I spent a summer hanging out at the wrestling office on 8th Avenue in Nashville when my mom was single and working and she needed a babysitter for me. And I was a good kid. I could stay out from underfoot at the wrestling office. So it was easy to just drop me off there. And I would spend the day with Teeny uh, when she was in town. And George, he was early 20s at that point. And was kind of a bully to me. Like, I, I've got negative memories of George. And so he gets beat up pretty badly in my book. Um, I tell some stories about him. Let's just say he made some really bad decisions at various points in his life. Sure. Uh, and one of those that ended him up on the uh, local news in Nashville. I mean, on the face of it, it's a hilarious story. Uh, you dig a little deeper and show a little compassion and think, wow, that's really a shame that happened. Uh, I mean, sure. he, offered, he brought it on himself, but point is, I gave George a hard time. George has received nothing but a hard time uh, from the wrestling community, by and large, from 99.9%. But the truth of the matter is, today, he's a happy man. He works with special needs kids. He's doing okay. And I know this through uh, a wrestling historian that I know who has uh, spent time with George more recently and sees him somewhat regularly. And so I feel a little bad for how hard a time I gave George in my book. Not that he didn't earn a lot of it, but in the end, it is a, his is a bit of a tragic story. Well, I have to wrap up shortly, but I could easily talk to you for a long time about this. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. I just want to quickly remind people to, first of all, buy your book to find out about the negative light George was... (laughs) 
was made, no, 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 no. But but your book is Teeny Professional Wrestling's Grand Dame. It sounds, I mean, everything about it is is fascinating to me from this conversation. Quickly, what is one thing you wish people knew about Teeny that you find that that maybe even people who are familiar with her don't know? She's the most generous person I've ever known. Uh, I feel like I owe everything I have to her, but she was generous, you know, not just to family, but to, to everyone. I mean, I, I want everybody to know everything they can about her, right? My whole goal in this is to cement my grandmother's legacy, to tell the world about how this woman spent 50 years uh, working behind the scenes of a really colorful, very male dominated world and succeeded. Uh, and in doing so, she pulled her immediate and somewhat extended family out of the depths of the gutters of East Nashville and into a pretty damn comfortable middle-class life. I just think she was an amazing woman and, uh, and I want everybody to know that. Wow, that's fantastic. And this was back when East Nashville was not the East Nashville we know today. <laughs> not at all. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time talking about just how poor they were and all the alcoholism that, uh, mm-hmm. that contributed to that. And um, yeah, she, she had a very tough childhood uh, and she made the most of it by focusing on education and hard work is really what it was all about. Awesome. Brennan, thank you so much. And I'm so glad we ended up serendipitously finding each other. I look forward to checking out the book. It sounds like you've put an incredible amount of research into it. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. I really appreciate you having me on. It was uh, really fun to talk to you, Alex. Right on. Take care. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Brennan for coming on the show and thanks to Cameron Davidson for making the show sound great. As always, Natural Demon Savat is brought to you by Knack Factory. Again, I just want to tell you that it's a commercial video and content production company and by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts by Nashvillians. Uh, check it out. Check out that network. It is a favorite and it's got some of my favorite shows. And if this is a show that you enjoy, again, I just want to encourage you to like, rate, subscribe, leave a review, find us on Instagram and Twitter. And again, if you have to, if this is a place that is still important in your heart and in your soul, you can find us on Facebook, I guess. We'll talk with you all next week. Thank you so much for joining. I love doing this and I'm glad that you're here. Mm -hmm.